Good morning. Our scripture verse this morning is Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. This is a treat for me. Uh, as Paul mentioned, my family and I, we attend the Brookside campus of Christ Community Church. And, uh, but, but I've had a chance to, to, to worship there and, and now to speak to a number of the campuses. And when I was a resident back in 2009, of course, Paul went through the... Uh, did you do the... You went through the pastoral residency? Yes, of course. Uh, when were you uh, in the pastoral residency? 14 and, 15. 14 and 15. So I was there from 2009 to 2011. And uh, at that time, the Shawnee campus wasn't even a dream yet. So uh, this uh, building, uh, this congregation didn't exist yet. It's amazing to see what God has done in the last decade. As Paul mentioned, now I work with uh, Made to Flourish, which is a national organization. We serve about 4,400 pastors, uh, about uh, 3,000 churches. And we're all trying to figure out together, what does it look like to take this faith that we profess and how does that flesh out in the places where we spend most of our time at work? And how can uh, churches help people make uh, that connection? That's really a core value of Christ's community that happens in a lot of ways. I guess that's probably why I was asked to speak today, because uh, you heard it. But in the, in the verse that we read, just one verse, uh, Paul, in the letter of Ephesians, talks about this area of work. So we're going to be digging into that uh, in just a second. By the way, this is not supposed to be super complicated, it's not supposed to be super complicated, but it's one of the most important issues that we can talk about as followers of Christ. What does faith in Christ have to do with where we spend most of our time at work? And again, when I say work, I mean paid or unpaid. It's not necessarily a paid job. It's, it's your contribution, uh, not just your compensation. So to put some flesh on it, uh, I think of my dad. Um, my dad was a high school superintendent. We grew up in a small town in North Dakota, and when I say small town, I mean actual small town, 400 people uh, in the entire town. Uh, uh, there were nine people in my graduating class, so an actual small town. You've got to figure, even if you're the valedictorian, you're not sure if you can list that you're in the top 10%, you know, <laughs> that kind of small town. So this was, not like, this was not like a fancy job, this was not a glitzy job, but my dad was a superintendent there. He got up every single morning at 6 a.m. and got ready for school. He put a suit on every day. I was a suit in those days. And he tried to be at school by 7 a.m. So he could get in an hour and a half before the students came. And he'd work a long day until about 5, of course. And then he'd always try to be home by 5 so we could have dinner together as a family. But you know how this goes. At schools, there's always something going on at night, whether it's a music production or some sporting event. My dad was oftentimes back at the school then at night. In other words, he put 50, 60, 70 hours of his life at work uh, every single week. I actually interviewed my mom and dad uh, for their 60th wedding anniversary a few years back. I'm the runt in my family, so I'm by far the, the baby. My parents are in their mid-80s. And uh, I was just asking him about kind of his work through the years. And when I, when I asked him about his work, now he's been retired for almost, you know, over 20 years, he could recount like exact projects that he was working on. He knew the graduation rate. He knew how many people went to like a vocational program after high school. In other words, like his work meant something to him. It was really meaningful. And then in another part of my dad's life, we grew up going to church. 
I mean, we were in those pews every single Sunday. None of this 1.6 times per month stuff or whatever uh, uh, many of us average. That's probably what my family averages these days. But it's interesting. As I, as I think about my dad going to church all those years so faithfully, I don't think there was ever once where he heard from his church or his pastor that what he was doing as a superintendent had anything to do with what God was doing in the world. You know, his work of like helping students realizing their God-given potential and like God had called them there. He never heard that message once. And I look back at that and that makes me really sad because I think that would have meant a lot to my dad. I think that a lot of connections probably would have happened with his faith in Christ and his everyday work. I mean, you think about it, and the average adult will spend something like 60,000 hours working, again, paid or unpaid in our lives, 60,000 hours. So faith in Christ is supposed to be at the center of our lives, right? That's what we say, right, (laughs) in church spaces like this. Christ at the center of our lives. How does that connect with where we spend most of our time? Well, we've been in the series uh, Reconstructing Faith, asking what it might look like to build back faith that's been deconstructed. And this topic of our, how our faith relates to our work is just super important in this conversation because we have to settle in our minds, is faith something that's only personal and private for like this little tiny slot, maybe an hour on Sunday, or does it actually have public relevance? Because, you know, you, you open up the newspaper and like the area of work is an area where our world is hurting deeply. This scandal, that abuse, this injustice... Does faith have anything to do with the pain of our world and the work world, or is it just something that kind of is separate? So we're going to be, uh, to to kind of address that issue, we're going to be looking at this uh, one sentence that we read about honest work in Ephesians. Just one little sentence, you guys. Don't don't worry. Uh, We're not covering too much ground. But I think of it like an acorn. It's like a little acorn that contains within it an entire tree. Because if you uh, were to summarize the biblical story of work in just one sentence, this actually does a pretty good job of it, and we'll talk about uh, what that means. So we're going to be looking at three things today, this little acorn. uh, It has three parts. First of all, what does honest work require? Secondly, what does honest work include? And then thirdly, what does honest work enable? What does it require? What does it include? And what does it enable? So I'm going to read it again just so it's fresh in our minds as we launch in. Here's the text that we heard, Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. First this morning, honest work requires repentance from dishonest work. So you heard, heard how the, uh, the, the verse started, let the thief no longer steal. Uh, it sounds like one of the Ten Commandments. Actually, commandment number eight says, you shall not steal. I think we all know what stealing is here this morning. It's uh, taking another person's property without permission or legal right and without intending to return it. But I kind of wonder what comes into your mind when you think about stealing. I tend to think of like a situation similar to that in the uh, the play Les Miserables, when, the, when Jean Valjean gets out of prison and he stays at the priest's home and, and they think they trust each other, but at night he steals the fine china, or not the fine china, the fine silver, and takes it with him. That's a picture of a thief. Or maybe you think about a pickpocket who's in a large crowd and they grab your, your wallet without noticing. In other words, when I read this command, it seems to have nothing to do with my life. 
Now, maybe I can think of, you know, one or two examples in my life where there's something approaching that, but pretty much I feel like I'm off the hook. In fact, uh, when I was uh, first preparing this message, I almost decided not to cover this part of the text because I thought, does this have any public relevance at all? I wasn't sure. But there's this funny thing in the Bible. Sin mutates. It takes on different variants, different forms. So what you thought was just a very simple, straightforward, very narrow command actually has all these different expressions of what it looks like. And I find at least that it hits closer to home than what I originally thought. So even in the Bible, if you just, you know, did a biblical survey of stealing and what does that look like? You've got all these different ways it happens. Here are just a couple in the Bible that you see. First of all, you see embezzlement. Bible doesn't use that word, but that's exactly uh, what happens. So this, this is like a situation where you're entrusted with funds and you just kind of skim a little bit off the top. No one's going to notice. They don't have to know. This was the sin of Judas, who is one of Jesus' disciples. He was in charge of the money bags, and here's what it says in John 12. It says, of Judas, he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I love that phrase, help himself. I'm sure it did help himself when he did that. Here's a, here's a second way that stealing takes a, a form in the Bible. Uh, not paying those who have done work for you. So this is all over the, New, the Old Testament. Here's Leviticus 19.3. You shall not steal, and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. Hire someone to do some stuff, and you know what? I'm just not going to get around to paying them for a while. That's actually stealing in the Bible. Here's a third category. Charging more than what is owed on a product, especially if there's a gap in knowledge between the buyer and the seller. So this is Luke chapter 3. It says, even tax collectors came to be baptized by John the Baptist. They said, teacher, if we're going to repent, what should we do? John the Baptist said, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. See, in their job, they had like a sum that they were supposed to collect, and that's all they were supposed to collect, but they would just add a little bit on top, and people had to pay more than what was owed. Here's a fourth category in the first century that was very common for stealing, extortion. This is like was really common among soldiers because they had all this power, and like people were traveling, and like, I can kind of bully you, and I'm only going to let you out if you pay me a sum kind of on the side. So this is Luke chapter 3. Some soldiers came to John the Baptist and said, well, what should we do if we're going to repent? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So in the first century of Ephesus, theft was pervasive. It was just like everywhere in the society. Here's my question. How pervasive is stealing in our world? It's actually everywhere as well. But you would expect that the forms, the variants have been changing because our economy looks very different. We live in a knowledge economy. So you'd expect that stealing in our day looks like very different, right? And that's exactly what you see when you look at the data. Here are just a couple categories of theft uh, with some stats. So first of all, identity theft. Anyone had their credit card compromised in like the last month or week? <laughs> I feel like I'm always getting a notification that this is happening. Uh, Victims lost $52 billion to identity thieves in 2021. That study was by AARP, probably because a lot of seniors are victims of identity theft in particular. Here's a second category, tax fraud and avoidance. 
So Charles Reddick, who's the commissioner of the IRS, estimates the U.S. loses $1 trillion every year in unpaid taxes. This is not like finding a clever way to get around the tax system. This is unpaid taxes, and that's not a typo, $1 trillion with a T. Here's a third category, stealing intellectual property. This is where there's like a good business idea and they've got like a brand and it's protected by a patent or something and I'm going to use that to go make money over here. The Commission on the Theft of American Intellectual Property estimates that annual costs from IP losses may be as high as $600 billion. Here's a fourth category. This is probably what we think of when we think of stealing, shoplifting. According to the Retail Industry Leaders Association, as much as $68.9 billion worth of products were stolen from retailers in 2019, and the numbers have only spiked uh, post-COVID. Here's the interesting thing about that stat, though. Most shoplifting doesn't happen from people coming outside of a company. The vast majority of stealing and shoplifting comes from employees themselves, who just kind of take what they need, and we don't have to mention it. Here's uh, another category of stealing in our day, not paying for work others have done. Some of you are small business owners, and you've been on the bad side of this. <laughs> We're like, you've sent an invoice, and just it does not get paid. According to a 2019 study commissioned by Freelancers Union, which represents over 56 million independent workers across the U.S., 74% of freelancers have experienced non-payment or late payment from clients. The average freelance worker lost $5,900 on missed payments that year, which accounted for 13% of their total income. If you are a freelancer, you have to budget for theft. <laughs> like travel, line, materials, line, oh, theft. And it's going to be 13% of your budget. Here's another uh, category. And I'm real I realize I'm kind of meddling on this next one, so at least I know it. So, you know, hopefully I'm absolved. Not working at work and still collecting a paycheck. So according to data by, uh, collected by Gallup, 66% of workers in the American workforce are checked out at their jobs, resulting in an estimated $480 to $600 billion a year in lost productivity. You add it all up, and just with these examples, I could have given many more, but just these examples, it's between $2 and $3 trillion in our economy in theft. That's about half the size of the entire federal budget in theft every year. So I've been picking on everyone else, but I'm in church world. I'm a pastor. How do pastors steal? That's very obvious, actually. Plagiarism. In our world of pastoring, plagiarism is the primary mode of stealing. We steal people's ideas or people's sermons. We pass them off as our own, and we get paid for it. In fact, if you look closely enough, you'll find that almost every type of work has its own unique kind of theft. There's a unique form of stealing for financial professionals and mechanics and nonprofit workers and contract workers. Because in every profession, there are unique temptations and opportunities to take what is not ours. But in a world where stealing is so normal, so pervasive, Paul now says, Not so with you. Let the thief no longer steal. In God's world, it's not about taking value from others, but it's actually about adding value to others. This new community of Jesus followers is characterized by putting off theft in any form. So what has ever been true of you, whatever has been true of me in the past, now in Christ, stealing has no place. 
Now, if you look at the verse, notice that Paul doesn't end the sentence there. He doesn't end the sentence with a don't. That's because the Christian life is not simply a list of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. Make sure you don't do that. Wouldn't that be awful if that was the Christian life? It's like, it's like if you were to ask a musician how to play the piano. Like, you know, how do you, how do, you do this? You've got this keyboard. How do you play the piano? And they say, well, it's very easy. You just don't press the wrong keys. You don't play too fast and don't play too slow. Don't play too loud. And, oh, yeah, don't play too quiet. And then you should be good. That's how you play the piano. Of course not. That's because piano players spend way more time learning how to make music because that's the point. And what is true of playing the piano is also true of following Jesus, even much more so. There's not only a negative, but there's a positive vision of the good life, the life according to God's design. And that's exactly where Paul goes next in the text. So look at the next part of the verse. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Secondly, today, honest work includes all labor all labor, which produces something good. Now, normally I wouldn't do this, but I want to show you another translation of the Bible that I think gets at the sense of the text even better than this. So here's what we just read um, in the ESV. It says, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. This next uh, version is from the NASB. It's a more kind of a, like literal word-for-word wooden approach to the translation. I don't always prefer it, but in this case, case. I actually like it a little bit better. It gets at the sense of of the text. It says, rather, he must labor producing with his own hands what is good. You can see how they're related, but this is is a little bit different. The sense is that each each of us is to produce by our own effort and work something that is good, something that has value. So I, I have a question for you here today. What makes your work good? I mean, if Jesus himself came up to you and he like, looked you in the eye and he says, you know, as you labor, produce what is good. Like, what would that even mean? I don't know if you've consciously realized it or not, but our culture actually gives a lot of answers. There's a lot of answers out there about what makes our work good. Here are a few of the most common answers uh, that I've heard out there. Here's one. Your work is good if it's aimed at saving the world or changing the world. So Elon Musk, this is not a statement on for approval or disapproval, uh, but he gets on uh, Twitter, as he's apt to do, now he owns the company, uh, and he sends out a tweet, because he'd been getting flack that people are having a hard time working at Tesla. And he tweets out, he says, sure, there are easier places to work than Tesla, but no one ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. He suggested maybe more like 80 to 100 was the ideal work week. For Elon Musk... Work is about changing the world. And there's a for-profit version of this. There's a non-profit version of this. But I have to say, it puts a lot of pressure on your day job if that's your vision for work. Here's a second, here's a second answer our culture gives. Work is good if it's an outlet for your passion. Do what you love. If you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. That's what Steve Jobs said. Sort of lovely. I kind of like it, actually. I'm not sure how many of the world's six billion people can ever hope to say it, but it's got a nice ring to it. Here's, here's, here's one more. Work is good if it earns a large income. Can I get an amen? 
I mean, come on here. I remember uh, being in high school. They had this book of all the careers and professions you could have, and it, had this, it has this long description of, like, what the work was. But then it had this box in the upper right-hand corner, and it showed you how much you could expect to make each year. And I learned very quickly, I don't need to read the description. <laughs> I just need to look at the number. That's how you choose, which is why I became a pastor. <laughs> Somehow it didn't uh, click for me, I guess. I wonder how you complete that sentence. Work is good if fill in the blank. In the Bible, work is good for at least three main reasons. First of all, God is a worker. <laughs> you open up the Bible, and the first thing you're going to learn about God, if like you knew nothing about him, is not that he's compassionate or holy or just or righteous or merciful. The first thing that you learn is this is a God who goes to work. And in the ancient Near East, when all the other gods were doing this and all the people are slaves, God is actually someone who creates, he makes stuff. And it's not only functional, but it's beautiful. Like he cares about aesthetics as much as he cares about function. And then secondly in the Bible, work is good because not only does God work, but he actually creates us in his image. He said, I've been at work now now you go to work. I've given it all this potential in the creation. You explore it. You figure it out. You uh, drum up what I've put in there. Which is why, by the way, when you read Genesis 2, the first thing that God gives Adam and Eve is not a hymn book to sing to him. He gives them a shovel to dig, to garden, to make something out of the potential of the earth. So we talk a lot about those two things at Christ Community, but there's a third reason. And this third reason I've been chewing on a lot the last couple months. It's been kind of blowing my mind. In the Bible, thirdly, your work is good because God is involved with you in your work to serve the tangible needs of others and bring delight to the world. God works through you to serve all people. Here's why I said that. Uh, here's one verse that talks about that, Isaiah 28. This is, this is crazy. It's lovely. I don't know why I said it's crazy. It's, it's great, actually. Um, this is talking about the work of a farmer. So here's the work of a farmer. Does the plowman plow every day to plant seed? No. Does he continuously break up and cultivate the soil? Of course not. He plants wheat in rows and barley in plots with spelt as their border. His God teaches him order. He instructs him. Certainly black cumin is not threshed with a threshing board, and a cartwheel is not rolled over the cumin, but black cumin is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Bread grain, on the other hand, is crushed, but it's not threshed endlessly. Though the wheel of the farmer's cart rumbles, his horses do not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He gives wonderful advice. He gives great wisdom. This is an amazing text. The whole thing is talking about like all the tricks of the trade, all the insider knowledge that farmers have, little uh, hacks that they have to maximize yield. You know, like the bread grain needs to be crushed, not threshed too much. You might ruin it if you did that. And when you're driving the cart, you got to make sure you drive it in a certain way so that you don't like bury the seeds. It's very difficult. It takes a lot of skill. There's an art and there's a craft into how to do it well. You'd have to be a farmer to fully appreciate it. And then, <laughs> did you see it? This verse says that it's God who's the one that instructs him. He teaches the farmer these things. 
Do you know what that means? It means that God is into the craft. The technique, the nitty-gritty details of how to do it well. After all, it's his creation to be explored and to be like understood and used for the benefit of others. So this is profound for your work. So you're a hairstylist. And there's this particular way that you deal with different kinds of hair, whether it's thick or whether it's thin or or whether there's a thin spot over there. You think about how it lays on the face. All of it matters for how you bring beauty and confidence and dignity to someone when they walk out. Or you're a carpenter. And you know like the exact feel of the wood, the exact pressure and how it feels depending on whether it's like oak or elm or walnut and how it feels on the blade to make the right cut. And sometimes there's like a weird edge that you have to deal with that wasn't part of your training. And it's almost like art, how you know how to shape it. You just, you just know. Or you're a financial advisor. And you know the questions to ask to dig out someone's values or help them under, unpack the bigger picture of what they want their money to do in the world for good. On and on and on. There are tricks to your trade. And this passage in Isaiah says that God is actually involved in that. He's actually your ultimate instructor. He's not like off to the side so bored by what you do. He's actually teaching you to do it well to serve the needs of others. Here's my summary. Work becomes good when through increasing excellence and love, people are increasingly helped by the way your work serves them. It's one of the main ways that God demonstrates his love his provision, his care to our world. Here's what Dorothy Sayers said about that. She was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and wrote a lot of plays. She's really brilliant. Here's what she said. She says, the only Christian work is good work, well done. Work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in their profession or trade, not outside of it. So work is meant to produce a good thing in and of itself. But in the Bible, work is good for one other reason, for what it enables. Look at how the passage finishes. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Finally today, honest work enables generosity. This last clause points to another reason why we work. It provides for our needs and it enables us to have something to share with others. I remember some of my first paychecks that I received, working at Hornbacher's Grocery for $5.60 an hour. Do you remember your first paycheck when you got it, when you actually held it? It was this big number that was probably a very small number, actually. But, like, it felt like it had so much potential. Like, what could I do with this paycheck? As life goes on, of course, the number of bills that consume our paychecks also increases. And if you've been working for long enough... It can be easy to begin thinking that the sole purpose of that paycheck is to only provide for your own needs, only like my tribe. I feel that in my own life. But one of the great gifts of work is that it allows us to earn some money to be generous with others, to have something to share. And by the way, this does not require a lot of extravagance or a lot of money. In fact, one of the groups that's actually called out for being willing to share with anyone in need in the New Testament They were extremely poor, like one of the poorest groups in the New Testament. It was the Bereans. 
We're not going to read the passage today, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you want to read it later, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says that these Bereans, in a midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us also, having very, very little. The Bereans gave very much, and it was their joy to do so. In fact, uh, there's a lot of great data out there. You're going to Google this. Uh, but if you, like, search giving trends by zip code, what you'll find is that some of the most generous zip codes in our country are actually some of the lowest income zip codes in our country as well. So this is not about having so much excess that you can't possibly think about what to do with it. So you might as well give it away and share with others. Otherwise, you're going to, like, burn it in the fireplace. In fact, one of the great dangers is believing the lie that we can start to share when we have just a little bit more, just a little bit later, just not quite yet. The Ephesians themselves in this passage were likely people of very meager means. So this can be a small amount to share, or it could be a very large amount to share. It could be a piece of bread. It could be an extra room in your house, or it could be something a thousand times that much. I love how Dorothy Day put it. She was in the Catholic labor movement. In her book, Loaves and Fishes, she, she said, it seems to me that in the future, the family, the ideal family, will always try to care for one more. That's it, isn't it? It's a posture. It's eyes to see need and to say, I think we have room for one more around here. Have you ever been on the receiving end of someone who had something to share with you? It's like receiving life itself, especially if you were at a point in your life of great need. And I wonder if you have a, a close family member or a good friend, and whenever you think about them, you realize that they're always coming up with a new way to share with those in need. I think about my parents, and uh, if it's all right, if you'll indulge me, I think I've been thinking more about their life because they're in their mid-80s. But they're in a, they lived in a small town. I already said that my dad was in education. My mom was a stay-at-home uh, mother. That was her work. So it was a home where all of our needs were met and then some. But it was a home of modest means as well. Recently, I was uh, not even connected to the sermon. I was thinking about ways that generosity showed up in their lives in these different ways. And I realized it was popping up in like all these different spots. So first of all, I always knew that my dad would come, you know, every other week he'd have that check folded up and he'd put it in the offering plate. I never knew what was in there, but I knew every two weeks uh, that that was a commitment of my dad's. And then once a year, uh, or even every other year, we'd get together with this family from Mexico. I didn't even really know what they did, but I thought, I thought they were doing like church work down in Mexico somewhere. About a month or two ago, I was talking to my dad, and he said they had uh, dinner with this family again recently. And he just kind of mentioned offhand that they've been supporting them, uh, you know, since, since I was a kid. It's been about 40 or 50 years that they've been walking faithfully alongside this couple from Mexico. Then there was the local homeless shelter. My mom always got kind of jazzed about this. They'd have these clothing drives, so she'd try to make sure that I'd get all my kind of lightly used clothing, and she'd separate it out and bring it over. And when she could, she'd give a little check to help. And then recently, I called my parents. And uh, my mom's 85. She's got like a walker, so it's hard for her to even get down the steps. Uh, when I'm there, I'm always a little bit uh, kind of hoping, hoping it goes okay. But I called them, and uh, they were sitting in the parking lot of a grocery store. 
And I was like, Mom and Dad, what are you, what are you doing sitting outside in, in the parking lot of a grocery store in your car? And they said, oh, um, our neighbor, who just between you and me is like a very difficult person, she didn't have her car. It wasn't working. So they said, yeah, we can give you a ride to the grocery store. She has a little check here. It's a little assembly of clothes over there. It's a 16-year-old paid-off Chevy Impala that they can use to help a neighbor in need. But as I reflect on that, you know, it wasn't anything extravagant, but it's almost as if they believed at their core that after working with their hands to produce something good, God had entrusted them with an amount to share with anyone in need. Maybe you've seen generosity like that, someone who's always finding a new way to share, finding a new way to give. I have to say, when you see it, it's really compelling. It's actually strange. (laughs) It doesn't seem normal. In our world where everyone is, and I feel this, everyone is doubling down on your own wants and our own needs, it's different. It has the aroma of Christ because that's what he does. That's who he is. That's how he acts. God is at work constantly in our world and in you and me, always producing something that is good. And then he gives lavishly, freely, gratuitously, both in the gifts of his creation, but also especially in his gift of grace to us and his son. Christ gives his own body and he says, do with it whatever you want. This is for a people that I will win to myself. We read about that earlier in the series, uh, earlier in the letter to Ephesians, this verse that maybe you know, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says this. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There it is again. Except for this time, the order is switched. First of all, it's his gift of grace to us, completely unearned. And then it's his work, his handiwork. Did you see what the object was of his handiwork? It's you. You are his handiwork. And God has promised that he actually won't stop working on you, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Work and generosity, that's what we're called to, but only because of his work and his generosity to us first in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we remember today that you first have been generous with us no strings attached, but you give your life for us that we might be your children. And you're constantly at work in our world in ways we cannot see. I ask for every person here today two things. First of all, may you alive in their imagination, whatever they're doing, whatever their work is, maybe even their work in this season is to look for work. I pray that by your spirit you would encourage them, that you'd walk alongside them and teach them and that they would sense your pleasure as they do it. Secondly, God, this grip that I feel in my life of, of clinging to what I have, may you, by your spirit, help us to open up our hands and be aware of those who have need around us so that we might better reflect you to a world that needs to see 
who you are. We pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.